0: Warning! This week's Drabblecast story has some foul language. Gee on out of here, pansies. Hello, and welcome to The Drabblecast, episode 112. The Drabblecast is a weekly flash fiction audio podcast magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. So, you might have heard about our weekly 100-character Fit contest going on, the winner of which we post on Twitter every Wednesday. Well, this week we have two winners. One of them is a great fiction story by listener Phenopath, which we just posted on Twitter. And one of them is from Real Life, which we'll tell you about now. Just when you thought it was safe to go to the beach this summer, we bring you Drabble News. Check Check this. This. Armed dolphins, trained by the USA military to find and shoot terrorists underwater, may be missing in the Gulf of Mexico. Never has 100 characters been so portentous. Experts who have studied the U.S. Navy's dolphin training exercises claim the 36 mammals could be carrying toxic dart guns. Divers and surfers risk attack, they claim, from a species considered to be among the planet's smartest. The U.S. Navy admits it has been training dolphins for military purposes, but has refused to confirm that any are missing. Oh, man. I wish I was making this up, people. Dolphins have been trained in attack-and-kill missions since the Cold War. The Navy launched the classified cetacean intelligence mission in San Diego in 1989, where dolphins, fitted with harnesses and small electrodes planted under their skin, were taught to patrol and protect Trident submarines in harbor and stationary warships at sea. Criticism from animal rights groups ensured that the use of dolphins became more secretive, but the project gained momentum after the Yemen terrorist attack on the USS Cole in 2000. Dolphins have also been taught to detect mines near an Iraqi port. The U.S. Atlantic bottlenose dolphins have apparently been taught to shoot people that look like terrorists attacking military vessels. Their coastal compound was breached during Hurricane Katrina, sweeping secret agent marine mammals out to sea. Those who have studied the controversial use of dolphins in the U.S. defense system claim it is vital that they are caught quickly. Leo Sheridan, 72, a respected accident investigator—whoa, where do you apply for that job?—who has worked for government and industry, said he's received intelligence from sources close to the U.S. government's Marine Fisheries Service confirming dolphins had escaped. I took this opportunity to, again, empty our PayPal account of all listener donations so that I could fly down and interview Mr. Sheridan personally about the matter. You'll be shocked to hear what I found. This is Norm Sherman, reporting from the Naval Air Base in Key West, Florida. I'm here with respected accident investigator Leo Sheridan. Mr. Sheridan, what can you tell us about these dolphins? Arrr. Now, the concern that these little dolphins have learned to shoot at divers in simulations. That's right, divers that look like terrorist folk. Now, boy, say some fella's divin' or windsurfing out there, and he's mistaken for a terrorist folk or a suicide bomber. These dolphins, you just don't know what they're capable of, boy. You never know what they're gonna do. Uh, okay, but you have to look like a terrorist for them to shoot at you? Arrgh. Uh, what exactly does a terrorist look like? Arrgh. Oh, I see what you're trying to do here. I'm not falling for that. This interview's over. Mr. Sheridan, are, are you saying that these dolphins could be racially profiling their targets? I said this interview's over. Out of my way. Firing at people, or at the very least uh, detaining them indefinitely without trial. I didn't say that. All I said was "Are." Who will hold these dolphins accountable, sir? Are any of us safe? Really, though... In some secret meeting somewhere in the Pentagon, our government came to an agreement on what they thought terrorists looked like, and then they trained secret agent dolphins to shoot darts at them underwater. While I'm certainly not opposed to the last point, it's about time we started saddling up animals with weaponry, it's disturbing to think that we might be infusing some forms of racism into dolphins, the most innocent, lovable, and all-around awesome animals we've got. Plus, the government should know better than to mess with this stuff. These things always backfire. Didn't they learn from their last mistake? He has the skills of a dangerous marine mammal. Stop right there! I need to know, what went wrong? I think he snapped. But he has no memory. We don't take care of this, we will both burn. He's trained, conditioned, <laughs> built to disappear. He says he can give you five buckets of herring if you take him to Paris. And I don't get hurt. That's the deal. Now, the government's top bottlenose agent is about to become their number one target. It's called echolocation. We think he's using it to communicate. And the only chance he has at survival is to find out who he is. He's out of control very clear what needs to happen. Before they find out where he is. Get everybody up. I want the wall activated. Sir, the Bumblebee Tuna Company? Do it now! This summer, from the makers of Lethal Dolphin 4 comes. What is it? Something wrong? The Dolphin Supremacy. Who wants a Drabble? Drabbles are stories exactly 100 words. Send yours into Drabblecast at yahoo.com. This week's Drabble is called 3 Minutes, 52 Seconds to Oblivion by J.D. Risseau. J.D.'s short fiction and travel writing have appeared in Neon Beam, Atomic Jack, Prick of the Spindle, Identity Theory, and many other diverse publications. Her first novel, Blue, was published by Murphy's Law Press in 2006. She leads a nomadic life and was last seen traveling through Eastern Europe in the company of a Frenchman and the March Hare. She can hear it in the distance, a soft percussive churning. The hooligans and the old woman have left, taking their jeers and taunts with them. The clock continues to tick, but does not change. 3.52 PM. She stares down the tracks, which stretch into oblivion. An unfamiliar hue appears on the horizon It reminds her of alienation. She takes a step back. Maybe there is no better place. A shrill whistle pierces the air. Steam clouds over the forest. A flash of steel. The 352 rounds the bend. She steps onto the tracks and spreads her arms in welcome. Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. That's how Emily Dickinson describes hope. And while poetic, it doesn't seem quite right. Why do some people give up on hope then? Is it even a choice? And if so, is it always the right choice? Albert Einstein seemed to think so. Proactively, he said, learn from yesterday, live for today hope for tomorrow. Nietzsche, on the other hand, said, hope is the worst of all evils, for it prolongs the torment of man. I know, right? Nietzsche said that. The right honorable Winston Churchill said, for myself, I am an optimist. It does not seem to be much use being anything else. But then on the other side of the pond, in the land of optimism and opportunity, Ben Franklin said, he that lives upon hope will die fasting. So which is it? That's what this week's show is about. Well, that and racist dolphins. We bring you The Guardian by Michael Anthony. Michael's had stories appear in Desolate Places by Hadley Rauh Books, Dark Distortions by Skatopia Press, and Afterburn SF. This story first appeared in audio back in May 2008 over at pseudopod.org, which is a really great horror story podcast, by the way. When I was reading the story in our slush pile, I remembered it from last year, and I sounded out my barbaric yawp over the roofs of the world, because I was so excited. It's a great story, and great stories live on in the different tellings, as long as Meanie pants publishers don't demand exclusive unlimited rights to the story so kingdom come. How lucky are writers that they have audio fiction. We'll link to the story in the show notes. It's wonderfully read by Danny Cutler from the Truth Seekers podcast. So anyways, without further ado, the Guardian by Michael Anthony Tolia ducked, almost losing her balance, and crouched behind the splintered counter. A group of Georgie shuffled by, invading the night with baseball bats screwed into their fists. Twilight was a bad time to be caught behind the divider. Joka, her little brother, needed medicine from the captain, but she couldn't risk going back now. He'd be okay in the tent until dawn. She inched her head up, glanced over the counter, peering through the broken, mud-stained glass of the shop. The Georgies were scurrying away toward the mall. One of them turned mid-run, glanced in her direction. She jerked her head down and chewed her lip. Had she been spotted? She couldn't take the chance. She clutched the bag to her chest, felt the contents poking against her breasts through the plastic. She had been fortunate to find it, hidden in a hollowed-out cabinet in a back room. The rest of the store had long since been plundered. She swallowed a ball of spit and crawled along the tile worming toward the back. She heard yelling outside, the boys backtracking. She crawled faster, her knees scraping against broken glass. If they caught her, they might not kill her, but they'd do nasty things to her. The gangs had found her sister once and had given her the big belly. A little monster had squeezed out from between her legs, wiggling and twitching for a few moments before going limp. She remembered burying it, shuddering. The next day, she'd buried her sister. Hey, someone's in here! The sound of glass breaking. (laughs) Tolia saw a boy climbing through the window. She jumped up and sprinted toward the back. The boy galloped after her, yelling like a wild creature. Tolia tripped over the bag, regained balance, and slung it over her shoulder. She lunged toward the door and grabbed for the knob. The boy caught up with her, slammed his fist against it. What you running for? He said, grinning, exposing a mostly toothless mouth. Let me go! What's in the bag? He yanked it open. His eyes widened. That's mine! Shit! He swiveled his head toward the front window where the other boys were climbing through. You guys aren't gonna believe this. What'd you find, Pook? Tolia snatched the bag, hugged it to her chest. My brother's dying. He needs this. Mm. (laughs) Too bad everything here is ours. He tried to grab it back and she jerked her knee into his groin. Pook clutched his crotch, fell to his knees. Fuck, you little. He squeezed his eyes shut, grimacing. The other Georgie scampered toward them. Tolia shouldered the bag, slinked out the door. She shuffled down the alley, heard the door fling open. The boys rush out. She got to the street, ducked right. Kill that bitch! Pook yelled. She sprinted along the sidewalk, the bag bouncing against her back. The sun melded into the horizon, disappeared, engulfing the city grave dark. Bloodthirsty screams could be heard in the distance. Human howls. The gangs and muties were waking to reclaim the city in their nightly routine. A rock hit her in the back of the head, and she winced. I got her! Someone yelled. Tolia glanced back, saw the boys a few dozen yards behind, closing in. They'd outrun her soon. She could drop the bag, it would give her time to get away, but that would be like letting Joka die. Her uncle used to tell her, you take care of your own, no matter what. She clutched the bag tighter, swiveled around the corner. Shops with broken windows lined the cracked sidewalks, deserted. She darted across the street, hopped through a busted-out window, and kneeled in the darkness. The Georgies barreled around the corner, pipes and bats in hand. Pook shuffled into the street, stopped. Three others gathered behind him. She's hiding, he said, pointing his bat at the storefronts. They lowered their voices. Tolia could see them whispering. She wondered what the captain would do, if he could take them all. He must have done great deeds to have his likeness so honored. The boys split up, running in different directions, searching the shops. One of the Georgies strolled into the building she was hiding in, swinging his bat between his legs. She hugged the bag closer, backed into a corner, nudged against something. A display case? The glass was still intact, and she briefly wondered what had been stored there. You in here? The boy asked, studying the shadows. He kicked a rock. It rolled across the tile near her foot. Bah, this is shit, he whispered. We should be mutie stomping or something. He strolled closer. Tolia's muscles tightened and she held her breath. The boy squinted, peering around. His eyes crossed her corner. He paused then turned and started to leave. A rat scurried over her foot, nibbled at her shoe. She kicked it and it squeaked, scuttling off. The Georgie rotated on the ball of his heel, bat held in attack posture. He spied her shadow and lunged, pushing her. She fell against the display case and the glass shattered, sprinkling the tile. A shard stabbed into her side as she collapsed. The boy pounced on her, his weight pushed the glass deeper, and she grimaced, felt blood dripping out. She wiggled under him, tried to buck him off, and he put his forearm over her neck. Don't move, he grunted, his sweat dripping on her face. He pushed her legs apart with his knee. She felt him grabbing at her pants. She flailed her arms out, felt the broken glass, and grasped at a pointed shard. Clutching it in her fist, she brought it up and thrust it into his neck. (coughs) The boy stiffened and jerked his hand up, batting at the glass like a kitten. Blood leaked out, soaked his shirt, and he slumped over. His mouth stretched open as if to say something, but instead of sound, a red spit bubble formed between his lips. Tolia rolled onto her knees and dug out the glass in her side. Stifling a cry. She stared at the boy for a moment. She studied his eyes as the last glimmer of life faded from them, the way that light faded from the sunset. She had seen people die before, of course, but she had never killed anyone. She felt sorry, wanted to comfort him, then bit her cheek. Pity and guilt were weaknesses that could be exploited. He was dead. It was of no consequence. She wondered how many people the captain had killed with his sword. She's not over here, someone yelled. Tolia craned her head, peering outside. The Georgies were gathering in the street. She grabbed the bag, staggered up, clutching her side. Where's Pinky? One of the boys asked. Pook shrugged. He cupped his mouth, turned in a circle. Pinky? You find her? You better save some for us. Laughter. Tolia crept through the shop, feeling for the exit. Pinky? Are you in here? One of the boys climbed through the window. Tolia touched her way along the wall, felt the doorknob, slowly turned it. She heard the boy crunching glass as he stepped inside. It was too dark for him to see her, and she inched the door open hoping it didn't creak. Shit! The boy ran to the window. Pinky's dead! Tolia slipped into the alley. It led back to the street, and she peeked around the corner. Two boys huddled outside the shop window. Pook was inside. One of the boys shook his head. She killed Pinky! Tolia ducked in the opposite direction and shuffled down the street. The bag cradled into her stomach so the plastic wouldn't rustle. She got a few dozen yards when one of the boys yelled, There she is! She glanced over her shoulder and saw their silhouettes chasing after her. She hustled towards the center of town, weaving through streets and around corners, just out of sight. She could hear their footfalls not far behind. As she went deeper into the city, the buildings got larger. Some of them half collapsed in on themselves. She passed a few muties stumbling around, staring back at her with blank eyes. One grabbed at her arm as she swerved, just out of its grasp. They made gurgling noises as she ran by. She passed a building with broken marble steps. A bronze plaque, almost black from age, was attached to the wall next to tottering doors. It read, To Serve and Protect. She could read a lot of words. Her uncle had taught her when she was young, but died before completing her education. I'm your guardian now. It's my responsibility, he had said. He told her that the atmosphere had poisoned his lungs, like the other adults, like her parents. She didn't understand the words, but she remembered his barreled chest, gasping for air, his exhales punctuated by wheezes, followed by silence. One morning, there was only silence. She approached a large crater in the street, almost invisible in the dark, and tried to stop. She fell on her butt, sliding, her feet dangling into the pit. It looked like the street had caved in. She pushed herself up and glanced over the side. Steel poles, pointed and broken, and twisted metal jutted out of the dark, Her uncle had told her that there was a city under the city, where people used to ride in the boxes that moved. The Georgie screamed behind her, closer. She hobbled around the collapsed pavement, stood on the other side. She tossed the bag to the ground and kneeled, one leg stretched out as if she had fallen. Then she stared back, waiting. Two Georgies barreled around the corner. Pook followed behind. Pook aimed his bat at her. You're dead. She stood, pivoting as if to run. Two of the boys lunged toward her and fell into the hole. She heard their screams below. Pook skidded to a stop, fanned out his arms, flapping them like a bird, then fell backward. He rolled over and stared into the pit. The screams of his friends trailed off, went silent. He then stared up at Tolia. His eyes narrowed and the muscles in his face contorted, twitched. He began to shuffle around the crater, his gaze fixated on her. Tolia chucked the bag over her shoulder and ran. Two more dead. The captain would have been proud. She navigated through the dark streets, around craters and debris, avoiding muties. She'd never been this far into the city, wasn't sure how to find her way out, and Pook was gaining on her. She passed a fenced area filled with lifeless trees, metal poles with frayed hoops on opposite sides of broken concrete, and next to it, a brick building with a giant fanged skull painted on the side dead boy territory. They were even worse than the Georgies, but she knew Pook wouldn't stop chasing her now, even if he hadn't seen what was in the bag. The wound on her side throbbed, and she felt blood dripping out, down her leg. She stopped to bunch her shirt up against the cut, and heard the sound of boots scuffling over pavement, a street-length behind. She glanced back and saw Pook's face twisted into a mask of anger and hate, and she continued running. She limped around a corner and ducked into an alley. She couldn't run much farther. The alley was tucked between two tall buildings and blocked off by a chain-link fence. Tolia hustled up to it, clutching the metal in her fingers. Just beyond was the divider, the outskirts of the city. Barren fields stretched out for a few miles, and beyond that, the forest where Joka was and the others, like them. Pook would be a fool to follow her there. They protected their own. Pook swerved around the corner, darted after her. She heaved the bag, tossing it over the fence, then put her foot in a space between links and began scrambling up. Pook rushed up to her and grabbed her ankle. She kicked backward and hit him in the eye. Pook staggered back, clutching his face. Oh, I'm gonna cut your tits off for that. Tolia climbed over the top. A piece of loose metal fingered her shoulder, slicing it open. She dangled for a moment, then fell to the other side, hitting the ground with a thud. Pook leapt at the fence, thrashing at the metal like a crazed monkey, pulling himself upward. Tolia grabbed the bag and paced toward the field. If she could make it to the trees, she'd be okay. Her side throbbed, and she winced, momentarily losing control of the bag. It slid from her sweaty hands. Stopping to grab at it, she lost balance and tripped into the dirt. Pook tackled her from behind. He punched her wound and she cried out. She held onto him, rolled over, pushing him off. They crouched, facing each other, and noticed that they were being watched. A dozen dead boys slinked out of the dark and made a semicircle around them. Their faces and hair were streaked with red coloring, and chains and pipes dangled in their hands. A boy, older than the others, stepped forward. Oh, Georgies don't go here. This isn't your business, Pook said, his eyes on Tolia. Oh, Everything here is our business. She killed three of my friends. The dead boy studied Tolia as if she were a creature he hadn't seen before. You killed three Georgies? Oh, she got lucky. Get the fuck out of here. You've got 30 ticks till we start hunting you. We've got a truce. If you start one, T5. Pook sneered. Oh, you'll be sorry for this. He jumped up and scurried into the night. Tolia struggled to her feet and grabbed the bag. The boy pointed to it. Oh, what you got there? Tolia gripped it tighter, he snatched it and gazed inside. Some of the other boys gathered around, looking in. I... I haven't seen this since I was a kid, he said, sighing. My mom used to... It's for my brother. He's dying. The boy nodded. My brother was killed by a Georgie. He tossed the bag at her. You better leave. One of the boys nudged him. Let's at least keep the bag. That stuff is- Shut your thumb hole. He turned to Tolia. I said, get out of here. She clutched the bag and limped through the field, not looking back. Tolia reached their tent near dawn. It sat between a patch of bushes near a creek that still had fresh water. Other tents dotted the area. She squeezed inside and saw Joka, his head resting on a crumpled paper, a flimsy blanket covering his skeletal body. His face glowed like an ember. She touched his shoulder and he opened his small eyes, smiling. I found something, she said, petting his hair. She opened the bag, pulled out one of the rectangular red boxes and held it out. A cartoon picture of a captain in a blue sailor's cap, wielding a sword, smiled over a bowl of cereal. This is Captain Crunch, like the surgeon who was a general. He knew a lot about sickness. She squinted, reading the box. Fortified with essential vitamins, she glanced up. Uncle said vitamins were good for us, it's medicine. Joka coughed and forced a smile, his cheeks sunken, his eyes dark splotches. Tolia pulled out the plastic inside and chewed it open. She grabbed a handful of the golden kibble and held them in her palm like jewels. She fingered some into the boy's mouth, one by one. He crunched into it. It's sweet, he mumbled. Good, eat. She put her palm to his forehead. It'll make you better. After a few hours, Joka's forehead still burned and his wheezing was louder. She had gotten the wrong medicine. She curled up next to him, cradled him in her arms, and closed her eyes. She would need rest if she was going into the city again tomorrow. The Georgies would be searching for her, maybe others now too. But she wouldn't let Joka die. She took care of her own. Well, that was our story. Hope you enjoyed it. Yeah, I know. But hey, that was some damn good cereal. You gotta give credit where credit's due. And then they threw crunch berries in the mix, and come on. Anyway, let's catch up on story feedback. A couple weeks ago, we ran Boiled Black Broth and Cornets by Frank Key. T. Baker said, Drabblecast plus Frank Key equals fun. While listening to the story, I also heard in my head how Frank would read it. What the? I think that was a Georgie falling into a subway. I don't know how that got moved, but I'm going to go ahead and leave it there because, hey, that was pretty funny. Anyway, Tom was saying, I also heard in my head how Frank would read it. Two entirely different beasts. Frank always sounds so indifferent. Norm so earnest. Rich Mazur concurs, saying Drabblecast and Hooting Yard. A match made in heaven. Great show. Frank Key uses the best words. I can still remember finicky bitty bobs, corrugated cardboard, and sulfuric spittle from far, far away. The only way that a hunchback named Mungo can be improved upon is if it's gibbering. Goal for next week to use flugelhorn and halibut in conversation with somebody, hopefully within the same sentence. I know I can do it if I find the right crowd. Devorah said, great reading as usual. That sentence with all the names was Olympic. Wow. And Frank Key is so, so weirdly wonderful. Yep, I agree. Well, hey, we like hearing listener feedback. You should join our discussion forums and get your blah, blah, blah going on. If you're a real fan of the show, you might find it in your heart to throw a couple bucks our way. Seriously, three or four bucks, that's it. If you subscribe for five bucks a month, you'll totally rock our socks off. You can find all sorts of support options from our main page at drabblecast.org, which you should go to right now and hook up with. We use your kibble to pay our authors for their work and to pay for production costs and to keep doing this every single week. So take care of your own. That's the show. Spread it all around. We use a Creative Commons attribution non commercial no-derivatives license, which means don't change it, don't sell it, just share it. You know, we did all the work. You just enjoy. The least you can do is write a review on iTunes or a blog about us, right? We'll see you next week. Until then, our staff is made up of co-editors, Kendall Marshman, Luke Coddington, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you that we really should and be mutie-stomping right now. ...drink, and the bartender shouts last round. An <laughs> hour ago, this place was loaded. A noise filled the room like the smoke. And laughter and curses spilled like booze from a glass. Words were all slurred when spoke. Yes, words were all splurred when spoke.